0: All right, so, so you may go on, what does that have to do with what we're doing this morning? So last week we said the toed in neighbor tood from Philippians 2 is the fact that my neediness is a necessity. Remember, we tend to think, no, we need to be Mr. Incredible, that neighbor who can do, do everything and help everybody. We don't need anything, but that's not true. Relationship is a two-way street. So, no capes. In other words, no sense that you don't have needs. That actually, what I hope you were willing to embrace last week is that on your street, you want to help and be helped. You want to be kind and receive kindness. That relationship is absolutely dependent upon neediness. Because if you want to be the hero, here's what will happen. People will admire you, but they won't relate to you. And what Jesus did, what we see demonstrated in Philippians 2 is this. Though he was 100% God, God without need, he emptied himself, took On the form of a bond servant, the likeness of man. In other words, he took on a role that required neediness. And so for you and I to be like Christ is to say, we're going to hang up the incredible suit. We're going to hang up the cape and simply acknowledge relationship is built on helping and being helped. Jesus also demonstrated the toed and neighborhood of my rights are releasable. Now, all this came from Philippians 2. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn there, please. If not, the scripture will be on the screen. But Philippians 2 helps us see with clarity what's happening with Jesus in his, first of all, his humility last week and now his exaltation this week. It's said in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was where? In Christ Jesus. Watch. Christ is now in you, so the attitude that was in him is intended to be in you. Although, and here was the attitude, that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it would have been easy last week and even this morning to say the attitude of Jesus is summed up in what one word here? Humbled. He had a humble attitude. And that would be accurate, just not very accurate. Accessible Because I could tell you, well, be humble, but that's hard to know. Well, how do I be humble? So here it is in very clear terms by way of review. How do you be humble? You accept help. You admit your neediness. That's what Christ did. And how do you be humble? You take the rights that you would love to cling on to, and you make them releasable. Humility could be a fuzzy, easy word to say, but hard to actually live out. Pretty clear, isn't it? When you say, "I admit I need help," I had a number of people say to me last week, "Well, I don't know, Doug. You know, I I don't like to accept help, but I've never thought about it as pride." I understand it may have not been overt pride, but ultimately, it is pride to say, "I don't need anybody to." help me, or I, don't, I just didn't want to put them out. No, there's in, rooted in that an issue of pride that says, I will live as an island. I don't need anybody else. That, this is so crucial. It's not just a good idea. <laughs> that is the manner by which Jesus lived his life. I hope you captured that. Jesus lived a life that required others to help, and that is the attitude that we want to have in ourselves. Now, you know what a pendulum looks like this, back and forth? Philippians 2 does this. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, swinging the whole way this way. The humility of Jesus demonstrated in neediness and releasing his rights. Now, the passage is going to swing not to middle. It's going to swing from that, the humility, the whole way to the exaltation. Watch verse 9. For this reason also, and to be clear, the reason is that because Jesus was obedient, even to the point of death on a cross, God highly exalted him. So watch. He went from humiliated to exalted. How did God the Father exalt him? Well, it says, and bestowed on him the name which is above Every name, so that at the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that, say it with me, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. So, the pendulum goes from the humility of Christ, neediness, Accepting help, releasing rights to the exaltation of Christ. And the exaltation of Jesus is demonstrated in three particular aspects. First, he was humiliated in death, even death on a cross, but the Father raised him from the dead. Humiliated in death, but raised from the dead. Question, like like Lazarus was raised from the dead? No, why not? Because Lazarus died again. You See, great for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. Stink for Lazarus to die twice. Jesus died once, was raised never ever to die again. Don't miss that. He died once he ever lives forever and ever and ever and ever, never to die again. That's from humiliation to exaltation. Second, he was despised in life, but the Father seated him at his right hand. Was Jesus despised in life? Yeah. Poor? Poor? Rejected, denied, mocked, falsely accused, lied about. Yes, he was despised in life, but the Father seats him in his right hand. What's the big deal with that? Well, the seated at the right hand is simply, it's the seat of seats. It's the seat of honor. It's, it's the highest of Seats available, if you will. It's not just box seats. It's the seat of honor. And the Father said, because you were obedient, even to the point of death, that you were rights released and took on neediness. I will cause you to live forever. You will live forever and... and You will sit at my right hand. Now watch this. This is interesting to me. Philippians 2 says, have the attitude that was in Christ. But then Hebrews 12 says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what I want you to see. The pendulum, the whole way over here, the humiliation of Christ, the whole way to here, the what? The exaltation of Jesus. What's the relationship between those two extremes of the pendulum? It's this. That he was humiliated, what's it say? He he endured and despised the shame, why? For the joy set before him, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, and here's our glimpse of what I want to see this morning, the fact of eternity and how he would spend eternity had a significant impact on his willingness by which he lived a despised life. You follow? There, there is the temporary... Uh, The number of years, whatever we are given on this planet, some of you have 50 left, some of you have 30 left, some of you may only have five left. There's the number of years that we get on this planet. And then there is eternity. And what this scripture is indicating to us is that Jesus determined what he was willing to endure in a period of time because of what? Because of what eternity would bring. He was willing to humble himself in life because there would be exaltation in eternity. He was willing to endure a horrible death because there would be life eternal. One more aspect. He lived as a servant... but the father gives him then authority in heaven and in on earth and in hell once again he lived as a servant but all eternity with all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, I want us to capture what the author is communicating to us this morning, and that is that this this over here eternity ought to radically impact how we would engage in whatever period of temporary time we get on the planet, which is hard to do because. Uh, at least for me, I'll speak for me. It's easy to get caught up in what's happening in your life right now, what's happening in your family right now, what's happening in your career or in your business right now. And what the author is telling us in Philippians 2 is that Jesus endured and did what he did in the here and now, in the temporary life on the planet, based on the promise of what all eternity would hold. So question, is eternity impacting how you are engaging in your days? Because that can be hard to do. The, The reality, is eternity impacting what you do, what you don't do? To think specifically now is eternity and the reality of eternity impacting how you engage with your neighbors. How many of you have lived in multiple places in Jacksonville? Okay, more than half of you it looks like. You ever go by the old place and, and look? My our oldest daughter was home this weekend for our second daughter's wedding shower, and we were looking at our son's house that he's going to buy at the end of April. And we were near where we first, well, the first house we lived in, and we said to our oldest daughter, "Hey, you want to go buy and see it? Because we we go by that place because it holds multiple years of memories of." family and life and three kids born there. And and so we were like, let's go by. And she was like, no, I don't want to go by there. What's wrong with you? And, And then I thought, well, we did move when she was two. So I guess she doesn't have that many memories there. But it struck me when we go back or when you go back, do you ever go back and replay the tape and think, wish I'd have done something different. I wish I, would have, wish I would have had a greater sense of eternity impacting my days. Because we, I was thinking, we lived off of Powers Avenue, Old King's Road, Gelding, Turkey Scratch, very bad name, <laughs> Rainbow Lake, Micanopy, and Cyprus, seven different places. Sometimes as short as a year, one time as long as 11 years. Kind of growing with the family. At each one of those, I can't go back and say with equal clarity, eternity really impacted how I engaged that street. But this is, this is the attitude of Jesus, who engaged in the humility in a, for a period of time for the exaltation that would never, ever end. So let me ask you a question. Does eternity await you? Does eternity await your neighbors? Every single one of your neighbors, yes or no? Eternity awaits every single one of them. And here is what I think this passage ought to bring to our attention. That at the name of Jesus, every, every one of us and every one of our neighbors, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. I want you to do something. Just close your eyes for a moment. Okay, think about the people who live to your left. Think about the people to your right, across the street, down the street. You got them in your head? All right. Every single one of them is going to bow to Jesus. Every single one of them is going to confess Jesus is Lord. Now open your eyes for a moment. The sign, early reveal this week, for our neighborhood this week is though this, that all of us are on the same road, but there's going to be a divergent. What Jesus says actually two roads. One a narrow and one a broad road, a wide road. Which one of these roads is going to confess Jesus is Lord? Yeah, see, I want us to. Say, we tend to think, well, the, the narrow way is the one that's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's true. So is this road, though. All, every neighbor, past, present, future, that you will, you've ever had, will ever have, every one of your neighbors is going to confess Jesus is Lord. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of what? When. So, I think the text is causing us to to recognize that this eternal reality is that everyone, each one of them, without exception, is going to bow the knee and confess. So it's not, again, a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Some... Those that Jesus said would be on the narrow road, some will confess and bow in this life. For what gain? For the gain of salvation. In other words, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says that some will confess that Jesus is Lord in this life for salvation. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then very clear, very simple promise, you will be saved. What that doesn't explain is saved from what? So let me explain. I've sinned. Lots. Lots. And you have two. It's the rare bird that actually refuses to admit that they have sinned. None of us have been perfect. Some of us worse than others. But none of us have been perfect. And because we've not been perfect, the scripture says that our sin makes us guilty before a holy God. And because he is holy, then our sin must be condemned. And we must be condemned. But the scripture says you can be saved. And you can be saved because Christ, who was without sin, offered himself on the cross in obedience to the Father, humbling himself and taking All of my sin and all of your sin and all the punishment that is intended to go with it. And he received it upon himself as our substitute. So that if you would trust in him, if you would believe in what he has done and acknowledge his lordship over heaven and earth and everything under the earth, that you would be saved. In other words, the wrath of God, the condemnation that you deserved, you'd be saved from, you'd be forgiven, you'd be free. That there would not be something that you could do to save yourself, but that you would be trusting in Jesus to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. If you'll confess and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. That is what Jesus described as the narrow road. Narrow road for this reason. Few want to admit They are deserving of the wrath of God. People are prepared to believe in Jesus, just not to admit their own deserving of condemnation. So, if these bow and confess in life for salvation, what about these? They too will bow, but it will be after death, and it won't be for salvation. It will be for condemnation. It will be the condemnation that they deserve. And the scripture tells us this in Revelation 20, where the apostle John says he sees this. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there are books, and there is a singular book. The singular is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the book's plural, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Why? Uh, Because, remember what Philippians 2 says, that God highly exalted him and made him over, all authority over heaven and earth and under the earth. So they, under his authority, all must appear before Christ. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, which, according to what we've just read, are written in the book or the books? Books, plural. The death, then death, and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is simply what you and I would understand as hell. This is the second death, the lake of fire, hell. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book, singular of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So if that sounds really confusing to you, let me make it simple. Every neighbor's name. Now let me pause there. Have you taken the challenge to learn their name? This is where we started. We started with our neighbors matter to God. So much so that he actually said, Jesus said, you don't get to love the Father and not love your neighbor. You love him by loving them. And so basic start to loving them would be to learn their names. But their names come up in this reference in Scripture. Whether you know their name or not, Every neighbor's name is either written here or here. It's either written in the book, singular, the book of life, or their name is written here, plural. If their names are written here, what did the text say they would be judged by? Their deeds. Their deeds written in the book, and their deeds will determine they are Guilty, and because they're guilty, they deserve and will receive the condemnation of a holy God. They will, after death, bow and confess Jesus is Lord in condemnation. Those whose names are written in the book of life. Singular, they are saved not because their deeds were better than these deeds. They are saved because they acknowledge that Jesus did for them what they couldn't do for themselves, that their deeds could never absolve them of their guilt, but that Christ took the penalty in their place. And so they will be saved. They will be cast into the lake of fire. This is, quite frankly, the difference between hell and heaven hell, and heaven. Everybody bows. Everybody confesses. It's not a matter of if, if, it's a matter of when. In life, for salvation. After death, for condemnation. And folks, this is a sobering reality by which we begin to think about the people who live on our streets. everybody's going to confess. It's just a matter of when. We tend to think about the people on our street. Are they rich? Are they poor? Do they have kids? How many? What do they drive? What's their house look like? What do they do? We tend to think about all the things about them except actually the thing that matters most. One of the things uh, I appreciate about my wife Jackie, and she said this often, Somebody who's well-known in our world passes away. And she'll often say, you know, they were great in this life. But it's quite likely, based on what we know about them, they're now in a Christless eternity. All that fame does them no good. All those riches, no good. We tend to, see, if you're missing, come back we tend to get lost in what's going on here and now, what we consider to be important now. And what is profoundly evident in the life of Jesus that I am challenging us and myself towards is that he allowed eternity and the reality of eternity to dramatically impact how he lived in the allotted period of time the Father gave him on the planet. And that's where you and I could grow more like Christ, just allowing eternity to determine that period of time, that we would begin to see our neighbors and think about their names as it relates to the book and to the book. So if this really all is true, what is the most loving thing we could ever do for our neighbor? What's the greatest expression? What? Yeah, cookies are good, but and brownies might be great, but the greatest is very simply to share the gospel with them, to to speak the gospel to them. That's the greatest. Expression of loving my neighbor is to to share with them. Paul told the Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You you know what that means? If a marriage has been reconciled, that means it was broken, but now it's back together. They're, They're living as one again. So there was a brokenness between God and the world because of sin. And God was bringing oneness again through what Christ has done. No, not counting their trespasses, ours against them. And he has committed to us, what? The word, don't miss it, the word of reconciliation. How do you communicate a word? You speak it. Our Our, I don't know how else to say it for us, just this plainly, we have been given the responsibility of speaking the gospel. And man, do we try and get out of that responsibility a lot. In fact, when I was in college, there became this whole movement towards what was called lifestyle evangelism. And the idea was that we shouldn't just share the gospel. We should live lives that lay a groundwork so that people want to hear the gospel from us. We should live out a Christian lifestyle while we speak the gospel. And that is 100% true. Yes, we should. But what came about from that was... Well, if I just live on my street and I'm a nice neighbor and I'm a good husband and a good father and I help people out, if I just live out my faith in that way, then that's my role. And that's not true. It is I am called to live out who I've been made in Christ. And then I have been called to, simple word, speak. Speak. I speak the gospel. And that's just overwhelming to so many of us. I think, oh, like, like, really engage my next door neighbor? Not about church, not about political things, not even just about spiritual things. Like, speak the gospel to them? Yes. Yes. He says, and he has committed to us the word. Simply, st- the role of Speaking the message. He goes on, we're ambassadors for Christ. Here's great encouragement as though God were making an appeal through us. So we're doing the speaking, but God is doing the appealing. Some of you feel, I just, I can't, I can't do that. Yours is to speak, God is to persuade. He is making the appeal. You are simply. Speaking the words. We beg you, he says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Every one of our neighbors will confess Jesus. Some in life for salvation, many after death for condemnation. And our Role. The reason that God has merged our stories with them is no doubt so that we would take the opportunity to communicate the truth. Now, more encouragement for you. One of the things that I absolutely loved about learning the Good Samaritan this time is that not only was he different in the sense that he felt compassion instead of getting in the passing lane, he moved towards. And you remember then he knelt down, and he got hands on. He bandaged him up, and then he walked with him. But something I had never seen before, when he got to Jericho, what did he do? He involved others in the process. And that encouragement that sometimes we feel like, well, I can't do it all. That's right, you're not intended to do it all. But the beauty of the body of Christ is that we can be involved together, not only in blessing folks, and ministering Christ, we can be involved together in speaking the truth of the gospel in this community. If you've ever lost hope for Jacksonville, let me give you renewed hope. Those are ambassadors for Christ located in our city. And that's just the CFC folks Obviously, there are many other churches in Jacksonville who live all over this city who have been born again and are intended to be ambassadors, people who would speak the gospel on their streets. Man, our streets ought to be filled with the gospel. Just absolutely saturated. But this word of reconciliation that we have been received, we're so afraid to, to speak. And so... I want to encourage you in a way that we can involve one another. One of the greatest things that we've been able to do at the chapel together is power-up clubs. Now, maybe some of you know power-up clubs, others of you don't. So let me give just a brief. Here's how power-up club works together. Power-up clubs, about 13 years ago, we decided to take traditional vacation Bible school, invite the community to come to our campus, and turn it upside down. And say, instead of inviting them to come here, we're going to put teams together and go into the community. When we go out, here's what we need to do a power-up club. We need some grass. But not everybody has a yard. So lots of times, we use a driveway. And this last year, there wasn't a driveway and there wasn't a yard, so we used a street. We didn't play dodgeball, we played dodge cars. But, so, a power-up club happens on a yard, a driveway, even a street. And then you throw in a team of teenagers led by an adult from the chapel who come to that yard, driveway, or speak. And they bring a bunch of kids from the neighborhood who gather, and they play games, and they do really awesome skits, and they teach them the Word of God, and they Speak the gospel to them. And you have a power-up club. Even, and this is why I picked this picture, even in front yards of people who don't have any young kids anymore. Some of you may have thought, well, I don't do power-up clubs. My kids aren't young anymore. You don't need to have young kids to do power-up clubs. Now, you'll need young kids around you. If you live in a retirement home, Power-up clubs probably aren't going to work for you. But if there are young kids around you, then you'd be a great place for a power-up club. And then your front yard with yourself and a team and kids, by God's grace, becomes a front yard where lives are changed. And it's happened to hundreds by God's grace. Last year, this is not ambassadors now, this is power-up clubs. Last year, we had 84 clubs every single day for the week of power-up clubs. Spread around. 84 of them. But here's what I find unusual. Every year, our we have more teenagers who want to share in power-up clubs than adults who want to host. So adults, what's up with that? Why do you have more teenagers who want to share than adults who want to host? So I ask around, and here's what a few people have said. It's really hard on my grass. Kind of messes up my yard. Now, is that true? Yes, yes, it's true. It's hard on yard. It won't turn it into a desert, but it'll be hard on a yard. But I think it's almost like Scripture anticipated, the reluctance to do a power-up club because of grass, because the Scripture says very directly this, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so I am not trying to be overly pious here. I'm simply applying that eternity ought to impact how we position ourselves in the limited days that we have on the planet. And if you have opportunity to exchange an immaculate immaculate yard for the sake of eternity for a kid in your neighborhood, that's an easy, easy call. Is it not? So... I'm not going to deny it might mess up your art. I'm simply going to say, it's worth it. (laughs) Well, worth it. And adults, why are teenagers outpacing us? In terms of their willingness to share and our willingness to host. Now you go, 84 is a lot of home. It is. And there could be more. Lots more. So, as we look towards summer 2017, July 24 through 27, that's our power-up club week this year. July 24 through 27. I hope, I hope you'll plan your vacations around it. I find parents plan vacations around it when they have kids. Why wouldn't Host homes plan their vacations around it? And I can say this honestly. For almost every year that we've done power-up clubs, what's happened during that week, my wife? What happens every week, power-up clubs? Our anniversary. Yes. She's not near that silent when we talk about it. Really? It's on our anniversary again, Doug? We're going to spend our anniversary with 150 kids in the South Auditorium again? Now, I'm not putting pain or in her back. It's always been on our anniversary. And we plan around it, except on our 30 year anniversary. We said, get a new speaker or change the week. <laughs> we've, we've planned around it for a lot of years now. And I encourage you, it's worth it. It's simply a, another small way that eternity can impact how we see the period of time that God gives us on the planet. So that's our week. Adults, let's not allow our teenagers to outpace us. Now you may have thought, wow, I've never thought about hosting. So we're gonna try something new this year. Sunday, April 2nd. We're gonna give you a power peak, isn't that cute? It's simply 15 minutes. That spread all throughout that morning, before services, after service, 15 minutes for you to go. Not you're signing up, you're just learning. What's this really involved? What do I have to do? What don't I have to do? 15 minutes for you to learn, to take a peek, and then decide whether you would be a host home. So, I hope we will work together in speaking the gospel together in our community. We'll saturate the community again with the gospel. Real quick, something not nearly as widespread but equally powerful an opportunity is something called Thursday Bible Forum. Fifteen years ago at a men's retreat, actually, one of our members, Joel Sanambrini, said, I want to go into a business and create an opportunity, now what I would call a power-up club for adults in business, men and women. It started downtown in a conference room at Smith-Halsey Law Firm where once a month on a Thursday, a number of Christians put money together to provide a free lunch to anybody who would come and invite a speaker. I do 9 to 12 each year and we come and we simply teach eternal truth in a business context. It's awesome. It's actually one of my favorite things to do. Really, to to drive downtown, to walk into a law firm, and to stand in their conference room, and to be able to share as freely as I'm sharing the gospel with you now, to do that in a business context. And rarely have I walked out and not thought, man, I wish more CFC people would bring. It's not just that you would come, that you would bring folks to it. And then it occurred to me, Maybe I should tell them about it. (laughs) So this has been going on really for like 15 years. And to my great fault, I haven't let you know. I teach Matt Russell, other evangelical pastors from around the city. Teach, and there's one downtown, Raymond James Building on the riverside. The South Bank, Rogers Towers Law Firm, their conference room, Florida Blue lets us take a room as big as we need to go on campus, 4,000-person campus, to go on campus and teach the truth. There's one down in St. Augustine. I'm not, don't, don't be missing, don't be fuzzy here. I am not in saying you ought to do another Bible study. This is not for you to do another Bible study. This is an opportunity for you, if you work in one of these areas, to simply invite a coworker. Hey, you want to come to a free lunch? There's a speaker. It'll be about spiritual things. I promise. I, I, I try not to be boring. But to engage Folks with real issues, including the gospel. It's a great opportunity. And shame on me for not telling you about it. So, it's just once a month at each of these settings. Go to ThursdayBibleForum.org. You can find when it meets at the location near where you work, and I encourage you. If you need to come the first time to just check it out for yourself, I get that. But the point is to bring somebody, because there are folks who will go to lunch with you, especially a free lunch. There are people who go to a free lunch with you who will never get up on a Sunday morning and come to church with you. And we get to teach the scriptures in the same way there. It's awesome, 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 awesome. I hope we'll make the most of it. It's Power Up Club's business style. As we do it, here's the encouragement. Paul says to the Corinthians, When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Folks, Paul's right there. Is that exactly what is keeping you silent? That you're afraid and trembling? You don't feel like you're smart enough? or smooth enough, or persuasive enough. And so instead of speaking, you're being silent. And Paul says, I felt all those things, but I spoke. My message, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but where? On the power of God. See, the power to save is not in your persuasiveness. What's your role? What's the one word? Speak. It's the power of God that persuades and appeals. So don't think it's dependent upon wisdom and persuasiveness. Don't allow that lie to keep you silent any longer. Seize the opportunity that God has given you to speak in your neighborhood, to speak at work to invite somebody to hear somebody else speak at work and believe it's the power of God now that's your last blank and I want us to declare something in song together so you can put that away we're going to read something from the scripture together And then I'll lead us in a brief prayer, and we'll get to declare the power of the gospel that saves together in song. As the band sets up, and you put that stuff away, here's what I want us to read together, okay? Here's what I'm, from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Would you read it out loud with me? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You believe that? You ashamed of it? What's our role? Speak. Would you just, really there, in a quiet moment there in your seat, would you bow your head? Doesn't have to be exotic or long or complicated. Would you simply tell the Lord, Lord, I accept my role to speak. Father, that's music to your ears. We would accept our role, and I thank you that you will be faithful. As the one who saves, you'll be faithful with yours. Thank you for that. Would you use us to saturate this community with the spoken gospel in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and let's declare the joy of the lost being saved.
1: Lost our saved find their way at the sound of your great name, all condemned The name. so glad you came this morning. And as you go out those doors, remember that you are ambassadors for Christ. So let's go be ambassadors. Have a great day.